This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. I don't know exactly how long I was in the clouds. I'm thinking it was around 30 to 40 seconds. I didn't want to lower the collective to just drop out of the bottom of the clouds. So I I tried to make a 90 degree turn and then slowly lowered the collective to to try to come out of the clouds. Welcome to another edition of There I Was a podcast where we put you in the cockpit with pilots in demanding situations and we learn how they flew out of them. I'm your host, Richard McSpadden. Today's guest is Andrew Edgerton. Andrew's a 5,000-hour general aviation pilot. 4,000 hours of that is in rotorcraft. He's a longtime GA pilot, grew up learning to fly GA from his father, who was a CFI, And then Andrew achieved commercial pilot ratings, CFI ratings, single-engine land, single-engine sea, and then he's a CFII in rotorcraft. He's going to share a story with us today about a VFR and IMC scenario flying an R-44 Raven II helicopter. We're bringing you this episode as a part of the AOPA Air Safety Institute's 2022 campaign to eradicate VFR into IMC accidents. These happen too much in general aviation, and we'd like to see those accidents come down. Andrew, thanks for joining us on the There I Was podcast. Hey, Richard. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. So, Andrew, you shared a really interesting story uh, with me. So do you mind sharing that with our audience? Absolutely. So I had to go back and and dig through the logbook for this. My incident, let's call it, would have been on, it was August 9th, 2008. And I was moving an aircraft, a Robinson R44, up to Canada for an owner. And uh, we were going up there, and the the owner was going to be using the aircraft, basically vacation purposes. So it was a you know Part 91 flight, ferry flight that originated out of Manassas Airport. We worked our way up to uh, Montreal, and I was with another pilot as well, who's the owner aircraft was an EC120 was a Eurocopter slash Airbus EC120. So we were a flight to uh, we and we left Manassas on August eighth. Spent the night in Montreal, and then we're working our way up into the the northern portion of Quebec, kind of up on the border of Labrador up there. So we made a fuel stop at Jean Lesage International Airport, which is uh, Quebec City, and right along the Saint Lawrence River. And this stop was supposed to be up at Bai Como was was our destination. And you know we we always talk about how we run into the pitfalls and the Swiss cheese and the links in the chain, right? You know, looking back, I can I can see that, examine that. We were going to meet a third helicopter in in Bai Como, 
that was another EC-120. And, and the gentleman that owned that aircraft, you know, we, he's one of these guys that moves very fast, wants to let's go, go, go. So there was that time pressure, that time crunch, right? So we had the time crunch and um, I was a low time pilot. I, I had 300 hours of rotorcraft time. So, you know, very low time. So we left Jean Lassange after refueling and in order to make it up to buy Camo on time, you know, we could have flown the river, the edge of the river was VFR the whole way. Yeah, I'm following you along in foreflight, Andrew, and it looks like um, from CYQB to CYBC, it looks like it would be just a beautiful flight up to St. Lawrence River there. Right, a- absolutely. But if you look, there's like a, a little bit of terrain you need yeah. to hop there yeah. um, on that little little piece that kind of juts out in the river. And so that that's about, to the best of my knowledge, where we were. I, I didn't have the luxury of uh, foreflight back then. I, I had a just a small Garmin handheld. And you guys were flying as a two-ship and trail with each other? Or? Yeah, yeah. So obviously no tight formation type stuff. You know, just just flying and, you know, chatting back and forth on, on air-to-air, you know, having a good old time and enjoying ourselves. And were, were you in the lead or the trail position? I was in the trail position behind the other EC-120. And about, like, how, how far? Were you visual with him or...? Yeah, so so we'd probably were between a quarter mile and a half mile throughout this whole trip. You know, obviously, you know, we're not doing Thunderbird stuff, right, Richard, of uh, tucking up under, you know, overlapping rotor discs or anything like that. But yeah, just a just a loose formation on the flight up. And uh, specifically on when this happened, you know, we were hurrying to go up there to meet the other aircraft. And um, the lead pilot, who's way more experienced than me, way higher time, uh, military trained and flying professionally. I was not flying professionally at the time, you know, a lot bigger skill set than I had. So we elected to kind of hop over that ridge versus, you know, take the scenic route. And so I was probably about a quarter mile behind him. And we had a ceiling and then we also had rising terrain. So not not good things. And so. I was talking to the gentleman and, and I lost sight of him around the corner. He So he turned the corner around some terrain and uh, lowering ceiling and I kept getting sucked in and he radioed and said, I think it's going to be clearer on the other side. And um, at that point, the ceiling, I was get, edging closer and closer to the ceiling and I didn't want to dive down towards the terrain. About what altitude were you guys cruising it? So probably around... 500 AGL. Okay. Um, so not nap of the earth type stuff. Yeah, that's pretty typical for you guys, isn't it? In rotorcraft or to cruise at that kind of altitude, 500 feet AGL, you're usually pretty comfortable. I'm usually pretty comfortable with that. It, it's, uh, you know, obviously the higher the better. You have more time and options in terms of uh, an engine failure, so obviously single engine, but this was this was out over the woods and unpopulated areas. So, you know, we have to we, tr- we try to mitigate that, um, you know, a little higher altitude gives you a lot more options. But in, in the area we were in, th- there were not many options anyway. So uh, so 500 feet, I, I felt comfortable with that. And about what speed were you cruising? So we, we were slowing down as we were. So I said probably about 80, 70, 70, 80 knots there. So, okay. but as we're kind of inching closer to this terrain and the ceilings eking down on me, you know, we started to back off the speed. That's that's one of the nice things about the helicopter, right? Is I can I can slow down. Um, I don't need to maintain that uh, that forward airspeed, so we can start slowing down. And it was I was light, so power 
wasn't wasn't really an issue. Okay. So as uh, as the other ship turns the corner and I lose visual of them, about three seconds later is when I I entered the clouds. So I entered the clouds and I called on air to air um, to the other other ships and. Hey, just a heads up, I've, I've gone IMC. I can't remember exactly what I said. I said, I'm in the clouds. So I was lucky. This aircraft was configured as an instrument trainer. So it had an attitude indicator. It had a, um, a turn and slip. So I, I had all the tools needed to fly instruments. Well, not legally, right? It's not certified for IFR flight. But some of the other aircraft that I'd been flying, you know, they don't have attitude indicators. So it's not required on, on helicopters. So I entered the clouds and immediately eyes down on the attitude indicator. And I was focused on that. And I, I, I gave a radio call and, uh, it was, it was very nice to have that calming voice on the other side. It said, okay, just remember we have the terrain is descending towards the right. So why don't you stick on your instruments and make a, make a gentle, right turn down towards the river. So I don't know exactly how long I was in in the clouds. I'm thinking it was around 30 to 40 seconds. I didn't want to lower the collective to just drop out of the bottom of the clouds because of because of the terrain. And there was some terrain out to the right off the nose, kind of at like 30 degrees. So I, I tried to make a 90 degree turn and then slowly lowered the collective to try to try to come out of the clouds. And so it was not a very thick, heavy, overcast layer of clouds. It was sort of broken, you know, kind of mountainous terrain up there. You know how the clouds just kind of sit in pockets. So I ended up breaking out what I think is about 30 to 40 seconds later, but my airspeed had slowed down to 20 and I was, I was fighting it. I had the leans. So it was, it was not a pretty recovery, but the big thing and helicopters and airplanes to keep keep the ship upright. So um, I was able to keep it upright. It was not pretty. And we and uh, you know I popped out after about 30, 40 seconds, radioed to the other aircraft that I'm I'm in VFR. And what I elected to do was, all right, well, I see the river. I'll go meet you at the airport and uh, up at uh, Baikamo. And I, I flew up the river and it was perfectly clear, no issues for the rest of the flight. But I actually was looking in my logbook and on this, on this date, I noted in there that I I put a point one of actual instrument in there just to remind myself of, of this thing. Mm-hmm. So that's really uh, interesting, Andrew, that you, you were obviously solo at this. Both of you were solo, right? In your own airplanes. Yeah, correct. Um, but we, each of us were solo in, in, in the helicopters. Yep. And so you mentioned that, you had the tools because it was an, in, an instrument trainer. Right. But at the time, you said you only had about 300 hours, but you were instrument trained yourself? Yes. And here's another factor that, I, that saved me. I went back and looked. You know, I, I got my instrument rating in airplanes in the, gosh, I want to say around 2003. So this was in August when I had this incident. But I got my IFR rating in helicopters back in April, uh, the end of April. April 26 is what my logbook says. And then I got my double I in helicopters about a month later. So I was pretty fresh on instruments, you know, just a couple months after my ratings. So I think all that time spent in the aircraft under the hood 
and this was the actual aircraft that I actually that I was able to do my my ratings in. So it's very familiar with the aircraft. It was definitely a, a contributing factor for my successful. Yeah, I would think so. You mentioned that you had the leans and you slowed down to twenty knots. Was that right. slowing to twenty knots intentional or unintentional? Ab- absolutely not. Okay. Uh, it was not intentional, and I think that's one of the the things that can happen is. You get so focused on that attitude indicator to try to keep yeah. myself. Uh, and, and remember, our attitude indicator in a helicopter, we fly with a nose down attitude. So, you know, a, a one or two bars down is actually forward flight. And I think mm-hmm. my mistake was is I didn't set my bar on the attitude indicator for what would give me, you know, 60 knots, 90 knots. Uh, what happened was I put... I leveled the attitude indicator and the helicopter did exactly what it was going to do, fly at about 20 knots. Yeah. So does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Now, do you think that's because at the time you were switching between fixed wing and rotary wing and fixed wing, you usually have it on the horizon in rotary craft, you have it two degrees below. Do you think that was a factor? It's just inexperience. Yeah. Would be one of those things is, is that, uh, you know, you, you kind of center that stuff when you're on the runway there and on, on the airplanes and, and helicopters. You know, we don't, it, there's so few of them flying IFR. Well, well, back then there were so few of them flying R. It's li- IFR. It's a little bit, little bit more now. But yeah, it's just, I, I think it was an oversight and a mistake on, on my part of setting myself up for success and, and putting that bar two or three degrees down to for, an indi- for a spe- specified airspeed. Yeah. And you know what's really insightful about this particular problem. As you just mentioned, you had freshly come off a training in that aircraft. Correct. And yet you went into IMC inadvertently. So even though your aircraft had the equipment, you were trained for it. The fact that you weren't really ready for it because you went into it inadvertently, that became a problem for you. And fortunately, you got to VMC airspace quickly. Yes, you can have all the equipment in the world, but if you're not ready for it, it's a big problem. So, yeah, yeah. I uh, I was really surprised, you know, thinking back on this, uh, how quickly it happened. It happened like that. And, you, yeah. you know, there's that whole, I, I guarantee you, there was probably about four, four to six seconds of, okay, this is really happening to me. Just that, that shock of the situation you're in. And, you know, ex- I accepted it and work through it. And I, th- I think that whole, you know, not giving up, uh, you can't give up because it's your life. So that whole accepting the problem and working to fix it was what got me out of it. Well, it's interesting because people think that VFR and IMC accidents are, you know, an issue for VFR pilots. But in reality, about a third of the fatalities are IFR rated pilots. Yep. And it emphasizes the situation you were in, you were trained and proficient. You just weren't expecting it, so you weren't ready for it. And that catches pilots we see, you know, every year in these VFR and IMC accidents when people say he was IFR rated. How could he have, you know, made made the uh, mistake? And that's why, because you're you're not prepared for it. Richard, we still see this in the professional world of pilots who are IFR equipped, IFR proficient you know, single pilot IFR helicopters that are, you know, having accidents and incidents because it's VFR into IMC. It's not, 
just because you have the equipment and you have the the proficiency, it's still a big problem. It's still an issue that plagues the helicopter industry and the GA and airplane industry. Hey, listeners, do you love aviation? Did you know that general aviation contributes billions to the U.S. economy every year and is a vital pipeline for military and commercial pilot force? AOPA works to ensure the vitality of the aviation industry and supports our freedom to fly. Join us and become a member now at AOPA.org. You'll become part of a worldwide community of aviation enthusiasts. We'd love to have you. Find out more at AOPA.org. You guys in the Rotary Craft segment of GA, a few years ago, you started this very successful campaign, Land and Live. Yep. And I was looking at stats right before our call today. And if you're a fixed wing pilot and you get into a VFR into IMC, inadvertent VFR into IMC mishap, that's about a 90% fatality rate. So it's unlikely you're going to make it out of that. In the rotary craft, though, your fatality rate's only about 65%, 65 to 70%. And I just have to think that this land and live program that you guys pushed so hard a few years ago has been pretty successful. Can you speak to that? Yeah, sure. The nice thing is that the helicopter is a unique tool. We can land them in really small areas and really small spaces. So uh, we've got the ability to stop. I think why that accident rate is, is still up at 65 is because we can go slow that maybe folks, okay, I'm going to keep pushing. I'm going to keep put, if I keep pushing, it'll get, the weather will get better. So I think that's where you have that 65%. I also think that some folks are, oh my gosh, if I land this helicopter in the Walmart parking lot, I'm going to get in so much trouble. You know, people think that yeah. uh, I, I've thought that before. So, yeah. but you know, I tell you what, Paperwork is is a lot better than the alternative. And and I've done precautionary landings, not necessarily for weather issues, but for equipment issues. And no one's ever asked a question. No one's ever said anything. No yeah. one's, you know, made a phone call and okay, hey, glad everything's okay. What can we do for you? It's not, you know, fill out this paperwork, you're gonna get in trouble. So I I really think folks need to take advantage of that land and live and, you know, go put it in the Walmart parking lot. Yeah. We'll figure it out later. That's a unique advantage you have in the helicopter, and so use it, right? Yep. So Now, I think as I look at this scenario, to me, what really helped you out was you knew your bailout direction. Yes. And what I call a bailout direction is if I get in trouble, which way am I going to go? And it sounds like you knew that because you inadvertently went into IMC. Now, you mentioned there's at three to four seconds. The clock starts ticking and working against you, and you immediately start this turn to the right to get to the river where you knew would be clear airspace. That seemed to be a really valuable piece of SA you took with you. Yeah, correct. You know, I, I think it's, we always talk about getting behind the aircraft. I, I wasn't anticipating going in the clouds, but my senses were up. I, I lost visual on the other aircraft around the corner. So I was like, let's start paying attention what's going on here. And, uh, to be honest with you, too, uh, it's such a gorgeous area up there. So m my head was outside soaking in the sights and, and looking at uh, all the gorgeous terrain. So I just by having my head up and, and looking around outside, I, I knew that there was a peak about 30 degrees off. But, yeah, you know, building that whole situational awareness and building that picture, you know, I think my 
my brain slowed down and was able to to process these things and and make that 90 degree turn for the bailout. So I think things happen so fast in helicopters that, you know, even when we're doing VFR work, you got to have that bailout plan. What are my options? You mentioned, too, that you got the liens and the aircraft got slower than what you would have wanted and that you were only IMC, I think you said, for maybe 45 seconds or so. Yeah, yep. Which kind of illustrates how quickly the situation can erode when you get into IMC conditions, right? Yeah, that I mean, 30 to 40 seconds is, that's a blink when you think about it. It's amazing. I'm still shocked at how badly things went so fast. Yeah, and if you're flying around at 500 feet, you know, your time to impact from 500 feet to the ground, of course, based on your attitude and, you know, your vertical velocity. But the point is, it's not much. No. Your time to impact is not much if you get really disoriented. And that's also what catches people, I think. Yes. And I, and I, from what I remember, you know, I tried to initiate a climb and you're naturally, obviously, if you're maintaining your same power setting with the collective and you slow down to, like I said, about 20 knots, you're going to start climbing anyways. So yeah, it's like I'm in the clouds, but I need to get away from the ground was one of the things that that went through my head. Yeah. So one of the things I've thought when I hear pilots talking about weather situations and sort of sketchy weather and should they go VFR, you know, or can, can they go or can they not, is you'll oftentimes hear them refer to the ceiling. Well, the, you know, it's only 1,000 feet or it's only 1,500 feet. And what I try to encourage them to think about is what's equally as important and really more so to me is the visibility. Wherever the clouds are, you know, I, I can deal with that if I've got good visibility underneath, assuming, you know, all the legal clearances and all that. Sure. And so a lot of times I think that that is overlooked when pilots are doing this assessment is, sure, the cloud level and the ceiling and all that, you want to know that, but it's much more important to me to know what the visibility is. I agree with you 100%. And, you know, the interesting thing on visibility and helicopters, well, one of the things we can do, unless it's, you know, on, a, on an instrument approach plate, you know, some of the approaches, you're able to half the visibility requirements. So you can, if you have to have a mile of visibility on your, uh, for your minimums, you can, some charts of plates allow you to half that down to a half mile. Yeah. That's not a lot at all. Obviously, that's different because we're talking planned approach right. and a planned route and presumably, you know, with a helicopter and autopilot. Uh, so, you know, a, yeah. at least some type of, you know, stability augmentation system. So, yeah, the visibility piece is very, very important. I, and I do I do think it's it's overlooked by general aviation folks. If you can see 10 miles underneath a 1500 foot ceiling and or you can only see a half mile under a 1500 foot ceiling that's a that's a really big difference right big there difference isn't it yeah and you and i both fly super cubs and so a 1500 foot ceiling with 10 miles vis in a super cub sure no problem i'm i'm yep. completely comfortable with that scenario right right now you start backing the visibility down to where 1500 feet and three miles no yeah I don't, I don't like that you know i just i just don't like that and then i would bump that uh, visibility out further, the faster my airplane, right? Sure. You, you're allowed to lower that visibility on an instrument approach in a helicopter because you can slow down. Correct. In fixed-wing aircraft, you know, if I'm out flying a Bonanza, I wouldn't fly it under the same VFR conditions 
with uh, clouds and visibility that I would take my Super Cub just because of the speed and your time to react to it, right? So I think you have to vary your standards and where you would fly based on what you're flying. I absolutely agree with that. It's for the GA folks out there that are, uh, you know, flying a variety of aircraft from helicopters to Cubs to Moonies and Bonanzas. I'm a big advocate on personal minimums and personal minimum. I, I have personal minimums that I use that I've actually built off my work minimums from what I have to do for, for flying helicopters at work. But it allows me to, I think, safely okay, can we do this? You know, what, and all, all of my GA flying is strictly for personal entertainment and, and, and fun. So I really think AOPA has done a good job in, in talking with folks and getting them to set personal minimums and, and sticking to them. And, and also those minimums can change as your experience grows as, or as you become, you know, if you haven't flown in a couple of months, you might want to up those uh, minimums. So yeah, yeah. I think, uh, I think personal minimums is a, is a big deal, yeah. and, and people need to spend more time on that. I do, too, and I think two things there. If you have the privilege of flying different airplanes like I do, your personal minimums should change based on the aircraft that you're flying, whether, like we talked about, it's speed for VFR or, in some cases, IFR. If I just haven't flown in a particular platform in a while and the avionics are a little bit different, then... I'll change those personal minimums. I'm, I'm not going to fly hard IFR down to minimums in a platform that I haven't flown in a while, and I'm not as familiar with the avionics, right? So being willing to raise those based on what you're flying, your proficiency, to me is important. And the second thing I think is that once you make those personal minimums, you should never allow yourself to waver them airborne. Yes. Because you always will. You'll, you'll always talk yourself into, well, I know I said I wouldn't fly, you know, below, let's call it 700 feet and three miles. But today, this and that, this and that, and you'll talk yourself into waving yourself from those minimums. So here's something that I've found has helped me, and this is a work thing, is we use a term called the in-route decision point. If we have a mission that we need to go fly and the weather's not perfect, but it's within our minimums. And, you know, we think it's worth a shot. We've done some risk mitigation on that, on the mission. We have a point, an en route decision point of, okay, we're going to go here and we're going to decide whether we go further or not. And then that's it. And if we get there and we can't do it and it's done, then we go home. So sometimes those, I talked it over with my crew. I said, we're going to, we're going to fly to here. And we're going to decide whether we can continue. And if we can continue, and it's criteria-based, it's set on these conditions. I can only continue unless I have this. So that, that's what I've found has been uh, successful for me on, on the work side of things, of, of trying to accomplish what I, what I need to do, but uh, not wavering on that in-route decision point, not wavering on that criteria is very important. Yeah, that, that's a great concept there. I wonder... Thinking back to where you were and you're flying with more experienced pilots and you're going up to meet somebody who's, you know, known to be kind of aggressive and in a hurry. And it almost sounds like to me that they they sort of talked you into a route that you didn't prefer. You would have preferred if you were going solo, you would have flown it over the river. But you were with this other guy and you were kind of in a hurry. And so you were going to shave off, which really wasn't very much time at all. Was that a factor at all, do you think? A hundred percent. 
by cutting over that terrain and that rising terrain, lowering ceiling, I, I, we would have saved five minutes, maybe eight minutes. We were going to go meet a high net worth individual. And, you know, it's always go, go, go. Let's get there. Let's do this. But by going up around the river and hindsight being 2020, that was the route. It was pure VFR. It had been a gorgeous flight all the way down, uh, down on the river there. It would have been absolutely beautiful. But yeah, that, uh, I sort of let that slip of, oh, okay, we need to get there. And then, you know, putting that faith in the lead pilot as well, mm-hmm. you know, he's obviously more experienced than I am and he's got, you know, his judgments probably better than mine, but, uh, so I'll, I'll lean on him to get me out of this. And well, you know, it was nice to have him on the radio, but yeah. at the end of the day, the only person that's going to get you out of that situation is yourself. So nowadays, you know, I'd be way more vocal about my opinions and, and thoughts on that. Yeah. Isn't that true? Isn't that something we gain with experience? I sure. mean, all of us have been there where, you don't want to be the weak link in the chain. You don't want Absolutely. to say we shouldn't go or we should detour. So, you know, these guys can make it. And you can't, You want to be in their category. You want to be respected by them. So you kind of go along with something you're not comfortable with. And we just see that as an issue time and again. And you learned it today. I learned it in some other mission in my young flying, you know, where at some point you go, it just isn't worth it. I have to have the strength and the confidence to make my own calls for my own situation. Yeah. And I think the way we're moving towards scenario-based training now in flight training and, and GA, we do it where we work is, is creating these scenarios as well. I think that's huge. And I have the flight instructor rating. I do it internally at work. I don't, I don't really teach any GA on the side, but I can tell you that I would certainly, if I was teaching in, inexperienced pilots that are, that are trying to build time and, and Teaching that decision making is so important, and this I'd love to go give someone this scenario, you know, just so it's not the first time they've seen it. Yeah, but it's one of those, don't you think, that it's very easy to sit here at zero knots and zero AGL and say, sure. "Oh, I just wouldn't go," or "I would." Yeah, yeah, it's easy to do with no pressure, nobody sitting across the table whose respect you want to earn. Yep. somebody at the other end who's needing you to get there, right? Right. That's that's such a that's so hard to simulate. It it is very hard to simulate. So I, that's why I think it's important to, to share these stories out there. So. When at some point in time, maybe someone will be in the same situation. They can they can recognize it. Let me take a step back and try to recognize what's going on here. So, but yeah, I was was a younger pilot and lower time, and you know they all knew that. All the folks I was going up there to go meet and go fly for that week, you know they all they all knew that. So yeah, I definitely felt like I had something to prove. Right. Didn't want to be the the weak link in the group. Yeah, we've all been there. Well, such a such a great story and a lot of good lessons learned, Andrew. Did we cover them all, or is there anything else we should take away? You got to be able to say maybe this is not the course of action for me, and recognize your limitations is is the biggest thing. Is I I think I knew my limitations. I didn't speak up because I didn't want to be like I said the weak link. Yeah, and then I'm just going to add though. Once you got into the situation, you were instrument trained. You went right to your instruments, and that probably ended up saving your life, honestly. And then you knew your bailout direction. You had studied the weather. You knew where it was. And those two factors, to me, uh, really played a, a part in you ending this successfully. That That is a true statement. I can still remember getting sucked into those clouds and going right to that attitude indicator. So I just wish I'd put that that bar down about two or three degrees and I'd be in a lot better shape. But, uh, you know, that's habit for me now. 
So. I bet, yeah. Well, Andrew, thanks so much for sharing your story with us. Uh, thanks for having me, Richard. I appreciate it. Well, there's a VFR into IMC scenario so scary that could have turned out so much worse. And it has a, a lot of the elements that we see in VFR and IMC accidents, which happen at a rate of over one a month. So we've just got to do better in general aviation of cutting down these accidents. And Andrew, all the situation was there in front of him that pushed him into a, a decision that led him into the clouds inadvertently. And he was very fortunate to get out of it, relying on his training and relying on knowing his weather and knowing that bailout direction. I loved his lessons learned that come from seasoning and time that says, you know, looking back, I would not go on that same flight on that same route. I have the strength and confidence to say no now. And if we can help sort of instill that confidence in others as they grow up, we'll, we'll help make a dent in these VFR and IMC accidents. Well, thanks for joining us on this edition of There I Was. Alongside our producer, David O'Leary, I'm your host, Richard McSpadden. Until next time, fly safe. Hey, listeners, if you like these podcasts and you'd like to help us continue providing them, please consider a donation to help our efforts. Go to aopafoundation.org slash donate. That's aopafoundation, all one word, dot org slash donate. And thanks for your support. There I Was is produced by the AOPA Air Safety Institute. If you'd like to hear other episodes, submit comments, or submit your own story to potentially be featured on the show, please visit airsafetyinstitute.org slash there I was. Thanks for listening.